So I want to uh, welcome you to the Mathematical Institute for uh, another public lecture. So this one is very special. Uh, Martin Brightson started as a head of department this, uh, this October. And we thought it would be a good idea for him to, uh, to, to, be, to give a public lecture as he's, he's the public face of the department and uh, to present him to the whole public as well as the staff. Uh, it's a very special one because it's an inaugural lecture, but it's the first inaugural lecture for head of department in this department, so it's the inaugural inaugural lecture <laughs> of the department. So before I introduce Martin, let me remind you that uh, in case of emergency, we have exit here and there. If you go through this door, you'd go down and then you'll find the exit, but make sure not to disturb the ghost of all the head of departments previous heads of department still roaming around in the they never they never quite leave <laughs> okay um, I actually wanted uh, Sam Howison the previous head of the department Professor Howison to give the introductory remark I thought he could do all the usual jokes about being head of department but uh, he was very wise he left the country uh, right after he was done but he left a couple of notes uh, for Martin so I hear the first envelope, uh, so let's see, ah good, it's quite short. Dear Martin, there is no money left. <laughs> <laughs> Best wishes and good luck. Okay, so that settles it, so now, now we know why he's not here anymore. Uh, so the, the second one, Letter number two, envelope number two, says to be open only in the case of a massive, ma a massive invasion of Belgian mathematicians. <laughs> so I don't think that will happen. <laughs> okay, so let me tell you a little bit about, about, uh, about Martin. Uh, Martin did, uh, is undergraduate here at Hartford College in the Mathematical Institute. After that, he left uh, and did his uh, PhD in Cornell in New York State and uh, was for a while professor at Princeton University before he joined back Oxford in the 90s. He's currently the Whitehead Professor of Pure Mathematics at the University and a Fellow of Modern College. His uh, main interests are in geometry, topology, and mostly in uh, geometry group theory. So that's a lot of words, and I hope that today's lecture will go into detail and explain that to us. So thank you very much, Martin, for accepting to give this lecture. Thank you, Alain, for that very nice invitation. So, since there's no money left, we might as well just concentrate on the mathematics. <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, so, uh, when, I, when I'm giving public lectures, I much prefer to do it in a village hall or a school um, where you're sure of the audience. The trouble with giving it in a maths department is that the mathematicians show up. <laughs> um, and so I immediately have to say, I'm not going to talk to you, my colleagues. I'm going to concentrate on the, the, uh, the genuine public, as it were. Um, and to the genuine public, particularly the young people, I would say, um, I'm going to flash a lot of things at you. And don't worry if the details pass you by. They're, they're bound to pass you by. There's far too much information um, on these slides to absorb in, in a sort of symbol-by-symbol symbol way or even a line-by-line way. Just let it wash over you and, and, and feel the beauty of the thing. Right? Just, just try and hang on to the, the big ideas and let the pictures tell you something that you don't have to translate into words or symbols. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the words in the title, very efficient of me. Uh, I'm going to talk about symmetry, I'm going to talk about spaces, that is to say geometry and different sorts of environments in which geometry takes place. And in particular, as Alain said, I'm interested in geometric group theory. Um, what geometric group theory, a lot of it's about, is how you can extract geometry from algebraic descriptions of symmetry. So I'll try and give you some sense of that, the way in which geometry emerges from algebraic uh, structures that are designed to describe symmetry. And then there's this word undecidability that my spell checker keeps telling me doesn't exist, but is commonly used in, in mathematics. And, and that uh, I want to try and convey to you that many natural problems in mathematics 
turn out to be too hard to expect a, a sort of global algorithmic solution. Okay? And so we'll see examples of that. And I'll try and convince you that this isn't some fringe phenomenon way beyond the boundaries of mathematics, mathematics fading into the sort of logic that only interests old men in wheelchairs with long beards, but it's really close at hand in natural problems. Okay? So that, that's what I want to talk about. Symmetry, the way that geometry emerges from thinking about symmetry, and then we'll try and touch on um, undecidability and how it really comes, comes into play with, with core mathematical problems. Right, so let's start with something we think we know. So we think we live on the surface of a sphere, that particular sphere. Okay? We might question that a little bit later, but let's think that's home, first of all. Now, uh, we might zoom in a bit uh, on those European islands there. If you don't know me, you might be puzzling as to my accent and exactly which one of those islands I'm from. Uh, we won't take a vote. Uh, I, I'm from that one in the middle. <laughs> it's uh, the Isle of Man. If you don't know me, you probably didn't guess that. Um, now, the flag of the Isle of Man the, uh, is what's called a triskelion, uh, that Viking symbol up there. Okay? And the motto that goes with it is Coconque Jecaris Stabit, whichever way you throw me, I stand. Now, that's a rather nice symbol, and we're going to talk about symmetry, so let's start with that. So, what symmetries does it have, and what is a symmetry? Well, a symmetry is where you take something, and then you say to the person observing you, close your eyes, you do something to that thing, and they say, open your eyes, and they can't tell whether you did anything or not. That's what a symmetry is, okay? You transform the object, whatever the object may be, in a way that doesn't destroy any of its essence, that really leaves everything essential preserved, okay? So here, I uh, took this picture, I left it alone, then I took this picture and I rotated it, and I took this picture and I rotated it twice. If you know how weak my computer skills are, you won't believe me. You'll know I just cut and paste, but just <laughs> pretend <laughs> that that's what I did. It would have the same effect. Right? So, um, now, so I'll call, call rotation, rotate by one click, and I've just noticed here that if you do it twice, that's the same as if you did the inverse operation of the first click. That is, instead of clicking two to the, to the right, I might have, or two anti-clockwise, I might have clicked one clockwise. Okay. Okay, there, there's a little symmetric, uh, nice little bit of symmetry. Um, but now let, let's think, so that has threefold symmetry, right? It has three symmetries, do nothing, rotate once, or rotate twice. Now, so that motto, Coconque Jecaris Stabit, that, that means whichever way you throw me, I stand, in English. Now, in pigeon mathematics, we might say what we've just observed, it is, I have three symmetries. In more sophisticated, fluent mathematics, it is something about my symmetry group. A statement not just about how many symmetries I've got, but what those symmetries are. And so I might sort of, be, being a studious person, write down the symmetries I found. I found I could do nothing, which I write as one for doing nothing. I could have rotated it once, so I could have rotated it twice, and that's all. Okay. Now in my notebook that I'm going to keep, because I'm going to try and make an extensive study of symmetry, I'm going to write more brief notes. I'm going to say, well, there's only one serious thing you can do to this. You can rotate it. And I'll make a note for myself so that I don't forget, uh, in case I lose my flag, I'll at least have my notes, that if I rotate three times, I get back to where I started from. Rotating three times is the same as doing nothing. Okay, everyone happy? So we've just made some notes, right? Now, mathematicians should be feeling a warm glow at this point. We're doing mathematics. We're observing what's in the world around us, we're making notes, and we're starting to abstract, right? So this is what mathematicians do. They observe, they look for patterns, they say, well, I'll make some notes about that. I might come back to that later. There seems to be some structure that might be interesting here. But the first thing I'd like to ask is, well, is the pigeon maths and the fluent maths the same? Does having the same amount of symmetry, does the fact I only had three symmetries, does that mean that if I find anything else with three symmetries, and make notes, I'll have the same notes. Does the same amount of symmetry always mean that you have the same type of symmetry? Has everyone got the question? So another way of saying that is, is number the correct counting, the correct way to try and 
talk about symmetry? Is it enough to say, well, when we're discussing symmetry, we'll just count like we do with many things? Or do you need, is there a more natural language that you should develop in order to properly discuss symmetries? Okay. So if everything only had three symmetries, it seems that, uh, well, it's probably, they're probably all the same. And let's think of some other objects with three symmetries. Okay, exactly three symmetries. Well, this is what's well, called a strange attractor. It, it arises in dynamical systems. It's a rather beautiful thing that, you, you know, that, that, uh, that fluid will flow to if it's agitated in the right way. And that thing, again, has three symmetries. And it's obviously got more than a superficial resemblance to that flag up there. Okay? And that, that's not because I went out looking for a, a, a representation of Manxness in fluid dynamics. It's just because if you take something with three symmetries, that's what you'll find. You'll have this same sort of sense of, th of, uh, of rotation, of, of, a, of, of a threefold symmetry just being some sort of cyclic rotation. There's another object with three symmetries, this time a, a, some Celtic knotwork. Again, it's got exactly three symmetries, but more than that, it's got the same sort of feel that you're gonna, just going to rotate it. Right? And if you think of anything with three symmetries, that's what you're going to find. Right? It's not just that has the same amount of symmetry, you really say it has the same type of symmetry. Well, that might, may or may not be interesting. Maybe we should look at a bigger example. How about six as a number? Okay, well, there's, there's lots of natural objects that have six symmetries. Fascinating fact is that if you take snowflakes, they tend to have this six-fold symmetry. And so I, I call that a photo of a... Oh, I'm going to slop over that for reasons the experts know. Um, imagine that's a photograph of a snowflake. What can I do so that uh, it's a real symmetry? So if you close your eyes and open again, you won't notice I've done anything. Well, again, I can rotate it. Okay? I can rotate it once or twice or three clicks or four clicks or five clicks. The sixth click will get me back to where I started from. Okay? And I might abstract that in all sorts of nice ways with uh, patterns, again, that come out of studying dynamical systems. There's a sort of a snowflake-like object, again, it's got the same sort of symmetries, right? Different object, but I can say exactly the same thing about the symmetries. Remember, I'm writing my notebook, so again, I notice I'm studying objects where you have a rotation that, that somehow accounts for all the symmetry. That is to say, if I just keep doing this rotation, I'll get all the symmetries. Now, if I do it six times, I'll, I'll get back to doing nothing. Everyone happy? We just made similar notes as in the, in the, when we had three. But here's a different object. Now, that doesn't look the same. Okay? This is, so we're off looking at nature. We're looking at snowflakes or, 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 or abstracted versions of snowflakes. Here's another object that occurs in nature, an ethane molecule. Okay? So now, how many symmetries does that have? Well, you just stare at it. We'll count again. Well. Uh, so the, these, these big ones are carbon atoms, these, these little ones are hydrogen atoms. So, so how can I turn it so that after I've turned it, it'll, it'll look the same? Well, I might, if I've decided I'll leave that carbon atom where it is, then I can obviously just rotate by a third of, of a rotation. Right? So I can rotate, um, fix that one, I can rotate those three around. So that'll give me three possible symmetries. Do nothing, rotate, um, one-third of a circle or rotate two-thirds of a circle. And I call that T for twiddle or turn. <laughs> right. um, and I could flip it, right? I, I could just take hold of it and flip it around so that I interchange the two carbon atoms. And, that, and that's essentially all I could do, except, of course, I could twiddle it and then flip it. And so you count how many things can go on here. Well, I can do nothing. I can always do nothing. Ah, stay in bed in the morning. Um, or twiddle, or twiddle twice, or I can flip it, or I could twiddle it and then flip it, or I could twiddle it twice and then flip it. Okay? And you can convince yourself that anything else you might try and do to that is on that list. So again, it has exactly six symmetries. Now, what am I going to write to my notebook this time? I'm going to say, well, I found two basic things you can do. You can twiddle or flip. If you twiddle three times, that gets you back to doing nothing. If you flip twice, that's obviously the same as doing nothing. That's what these, these notes mean. Then, this time I'm going to note if I flip, and then twiddle, and then flip, it actually has the effect of twist, twiddling in the opposite direction. Does everyone see that? Just think about it. I should say, but I'm going to put these notes on, on, on the web, so you, you can come back and look at these slides at your leisure. So, that, so there's another object with six symmetries, but that doesn't look the same as these symmetries here. 
In particular, try and convince yourself that here you see there's one basic operation and I have to do it six times before I get back to doing nothing. Here you convince yourself that anything you do, uh, you either do it two, twice or three times before you get back to doing nothing. So that's something that's really different. Okay? So here we can see that these two objects have the same amount of symmetry, but they don't have the same type of symmetry. They don't have, in any sense, the same symmetries. Right? So, so now we know that number, counting, is not enough of a language to help us describe the natural things we find in nature to wanting to describe symmetry. We need some other structure. We need some better language. I'll just give you one other example, which I'll do quickly. Um, because I want to do this because to think about the nature of a symmetry. What I'm saying symmetry, and hopefully you're not flinching at that. You know what I mean. I'm twiddling things around without breaking them so I can put them back before the museum curator comes. Um, but according to the type of object you're interested in, what you mean by a symmetry will change. Right? So if you've got a glass object, then you better not try to stretch it because it will break. So a symmetry is, is a rigid motion. Right? If you have a rubber object, then you allow a symmetry to be, I might put my finger on it and stretch it a bit, right? and then stretch it back. Right? That would be a perfectly good symmetry. I haven't broken anything. I can put it back. Right? I, didn't, I preserved all the nature of the thing. <coughs> so what you think of as a symmetry depends entirely on what sort of thing you're doing, what sort of objects are you interested in. Okay? So in this case, I'll be very naive. I'll just have three balls. And now I'm interested in, how can you rearrange three balls? Okay? So I don't, there's no rigidity now. I can just move them around as I like. And so I claim, once again, the answer is there's six ways of doing this. You can do nothing, or what I've called alpha. You just take the first two, and you interchange them. Or beta is to take the second pair, and you interchange them. And I claim that there are exactly six ways of doing this. And if you work it out, uh, if you do alpha, you could do beta. If you do alpha, then beta, that has the effect of, uh, of, of, of kind of cyclically permuting them. Or I claim that the alpha, beta, alpha is the same as beta, alpha, beta. Okay. So once again, just check. There's lots of ways to convince yourself. There's exactly six ways of rearranging those balls. And, uh, and I'll make some notes. Remember my notebook? Remember, I'm trying to develop a theory of symmetry in my notebook. And so this time I write down, uh, I've got two basic things I can do. They were flips, but all I'm going to write down is, is the bare essentials, because I don't have much space in my notebook. There's two basic operations, and I gave them Greek names. And I observed, again, I'll say, if you do a, alpha twice, beta twice, that's the same as doing nothing. And I observed this other little rule that I noticed, OK? Because that seems sort of interesting. You write notes on things that seem interesting. So now we've got three things that have six symmetries, OK? We've got that, for which we had this description here. We had that sort of more primitive one where we just rotate, and we've got that object. Okay, let's skip over that. <laughs> right. Okay. Now we reflect. Right. We go and sit in the pub with our notebook, and we think, what have we just been doing? We've been making notes about symmetries of things, but in that last one, we changed our mind about what we were, what we had symmetries of. So now we're going to do mathematics. We already are doing mathematics. Okay. Now, what's, object, what ma what's mathematics about is about studying objects called x. <laughs> the only question you have to decide when you start doing mathematics is what is x? Right? You have to decide what interests you. And th th that, that really is the start of a lot of mathematics. Right? So you, you observe patterns, you reflect on truth and beauty, and you think, I care about these sort of problems. And the objects that I want to think about have these properties. So I'm going to make a careful definition of those properties, and then I'm going to study all the objects that satisfy that. Okay? So maybe I'm interested in ge the geometry of rigid objects, or maybe I'm interested in the geometry of rubber objects, how you can deform them. Maybe I'm just interested in counting things and moving them around. It's up to you. It depends entirely on what sort of problems you're trying to solve. But the first thing you've got to do when you start being serious about mathematics is decide in order to do this type of mathematics, I'm going to study objects of this sort. You make a careful definition, and that's your x's. And then no matter what you're doing, you sooner or later get interested in the symmetries of that object. Okay? I'm interested in the properties of this object, the properties I use to define it. Now, 
what are all the things I can do to it that preserve all the properties I care about? Okay, so, so in the objects we started with, the sort of most primitive ones, you're interested in the ones you really can't see any difference. You preserve all the geometry when you change them. But no matter what sort of mathematics or science you're doing, you're really interested in the symmetries of your system. Okay? And th so those symmetries, or another word is automorphisms, so I'll, I'm not going to use that word systematically, but you should be aware it exists. Right? Though you think about them. You're in, you've got an object you care about, now you care about all the ways of preserving the essence of that object. So if you're just interested in sets, buckets of balls or something, with no extra structure, you're just interested in the ways of rearranging them. But if you're interested in glass objects, then you want to move them, so you preserve all distances, so you don't break them. If you're interested in rubber objects, you might stretch them. And if you're interested in more analytic objects, you might require, require finer structure, whatever. But just, just, just think, I have objects and I, there's ways of deforming them. Now, this is the first point I really want to get to. So let all this wash over you, but then absorb this. No matter what sort of mathematics you're interested in, the symmetries of your object, the automorphisms of your object, always, always, always form something called a group. Okay? So this is uh, a sort of propaganda or, or persuasion <laughs> um, that groups are the appropriate mathematical language to study the symmetries of any object in any context. Right? Now, for, most, for a lot of primitive mathematics, the right concept is number. You count, and then you develop number systems, and you manipulate those number systems to get tremendous mathematical power to solve questions that ask things like how much, or how many, or is this greater than that? But when you're studying symmetry, automorphisms, symmetries of objects, the right question isn't it's of a different nature, and numbers are not the right thing to talk about. You want to talk about these algebraic structures called groups. Now, this doesn't come out of thin air, okay? It comes out of your experience. It comes out of your experience that we sort of were pretending, we, well, which we were running through examples of here. You study objects, you make notes, and you start developing the sense of what the appropriate mathematical structure should be. So what is a group? Well, you just try to make the bare possible requirements that capture the essence that are common to all situations where you care about symmetry. So, what do you have to do? Well, as I said, you can always stay in bed. Every object of every sort has at least one symmetry. Just leave the damn thing alone. Just don't touch it. You certainly preserve all of its essence. Okay? So, every, in every setting, you should always have an operation, which is written one for historical reasons, of just do nothing. The identity. Right? Just leave it alone, stay in bed, don't worry about it. And then the other thing you can do, with, uh, what's a natural thing? If you're going to twiddle this in different ways, if you don't break it by doing that, and you don't break it by doing that, then you can do that and that, and you still haven't broken it. Okay? So you can compose. When you've got two symmetries of an object, then you can do one followed by the other, and now you have a new symmetry of the object. Okay? So you have this notion of composing things. Do A, then B. And if you didn't break it, then you can undo it. Right? Just run the movie backwards of you being caught on CCTV, picking up that Ming vase in, in the museum. Right? As, long as, you can, as long as you didn't break it, as long as you preserved all the essence, you can always undo what you did. So those are obvious inherent features of any system of symmetry, of any sort of object whatsoever. So we'll just make those our requirements. Those and only those, okay? Um, that's a slight <coughs> lie, but not really. Um, and then what does it mean to say two things are the same? Well, if we were dealing in the realm of number, the appropriate notion of the same is having the same number of whatevers they are, right? So we make the abstraction of two because we get fed up of saying, there's the same, that pair of apples and that pair of oranges, there's the same number of apples as oranges. That pair of chairs and that pair of apples, I can match them up so they have the same, that there's the same amount of apples as there is of chairs. Right? So we make the abstraction of a number, and then instead of having to compare to something, we can then say there's two of them. Okay? This, this is basic mathematics. Right? You look at the common essence of a class of objects you're interested in, and you abstract it, and you say, now I have my ideal gold standard one that I can leave in the Bank of England, and so then I, I can use this two to count pairs of things. 
And the same with groups. Instead of having to say, well, that's got the same type of symmetry as that, I want to make a list of groups and say, well, whenever I find a new object, it ought to have symmetries from my list somehow. I want to describe all possible symmetries of all possible objects. And when you say two things are the same, well, now it's not just a matter of ma matching them up. You should match them up in a way so that if I match A's with B's, A's being symmetries of one object and B's being symmetries of another, I should be able to match them up so that uh, when I compose them, if I do A, one of the A's and then another one on this side, it should be the same as their twins on the other side. Is everyone happy? So you have to match them up, not just that they're counting the same, but they, they respect this structure we care about, composing or inverting. Okay, that is the most technical bit, so if you survive that, it's okay. Just let it wash over you. If you di didn't survive that, try to wake up now, or go to sleep, as you wish. <laughs> right, but let's go back to our examples, okay? So now we have a language. We have the language of group theory. So now I'm going to just talk freely about groups, okay? So remember, groups, a group is a system of symmetry that, that describes the symmetries of some object. But I've abstracted. So just like I abstract from counting to having a notion of number, and I can then talk about numbers, now instead of having to talk about the symmetries of a specific object, I can just talk about groups. Okay? Um, oops. Didn't want to do that. Uh, let's go back to our three basic objects. We had this, our bucket of three balls, with those symmetries. We had our cyclic thing, except I traded in for a different cyclic thing, um, where I made those notes. And I had my ethane uh, molecule, where I had those notes about groups. Now, I have three different descriptions of groups. Remember, here I said there's two basic things you can do. Here are some observations about how these things behave. Here I said, well, there's one basic operation that gives you the whole shebang, and the only thing I note is if you do it six times, it's the same as doing nothing. And here I made some different notes. Now, are those groups the same? Well, we sort of argued earlier that that one was different to that one. Okay? But in fact, those other two, that one and that one, are the same. Okay? So that's just a little exercise if you've never seen it. Think about how to match up the symmetries of that object with the symmetries of rearranging three balls in such a way that you respect all the compositions and things. Okay, that's nice in one hand. We, we, we're sort of getting somewhere and being able to describe groups, but we're probably starting to be a little bit worried because this is a moment at which you should not feel alone. If somebody just walked into the room and said, I found this lovely uh, object and here, here are the notes I made about its symmetries, and somebody else came in and said, well, oh, I found this other object. I don't think it's like yours, but here's the notes I made about its symmetries. And you said, well, uh, is your system of symmetries sort of the same as mine? Are, those, are we talking about the same group in a different language? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not obviously yes. Right? Now, that's going to worry us because we get so used to number. So, so when I say two and you say two, we'd have no doubt that we're talking about the same thing. But now, when we talk about groups, we've described the same group, quite an easy group, just something with six operations in it, in two different ways. And that's making us nervous to think that actually recognizing what you've got might be a bit tricky. Okay? Now hold that thought. Okay? So we've got a language for describing symmetry, but we're a bit worried that when we have different descriptions, it's not very easy to see if we've really got the same thing in disguise. Well, we've counted, we've done some finite things. Let's do some infinite things. Are we feeling strong enough for infinite things? Some of you look strong enough for infinite things. Right. Uh, so imagine this is a paving going on forever. Okay, here's a nice, simple, infinite system of symmetry, an infinite group. You look at that paving, stare at it for a while, you realize there's two nice things you can do. You can shift this, this paving stone I'm, I'm pointing at along to that one, and the whole system will repeat. Okay, so that's a paving that will be a symmetry of that paving. Okay, the, 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 imagine this paving goes on forever. It's <laughs> um, a mathematics institute, not an engineering one. Um, <laughs> so imagine this paving goes on forever. That's obviously a, a repeating pattern shifted along. Okay? Or you can shift up. You can shove that one up to there, and the, it's doubly periodic. It's periodic in that direction and that direction. Everybody happy? So there's two basic operations. I'll call them A and B. Um, and the only note I'm going to make is, well, look, if I shift along and then up, 
that has the same effect as if I shift up and then across. Okay, so that's the only note I'll make. And so I've described myself another group. Uh, and I've noted there's two basic operations that seem to give me all the symmetries if I repeat them, and I only notice one rule. Here's an, a rather nicer pattern. This is a, uh, this is a Charles Rennie Macintosh wallpaper, I think. Um, now, it's different to the previous object, right? but it's clearly got the same symmetries. All the symmetries of this again, what can I do? Well, I can either shove it along one column to the next, or I can shove it up by two rows. Okay? And again, I'll call those symmetries A and B, and the only thing to really note is that it doesn't matter what order I do them in. Now, that's clearly the same group, okay? and it doesn't come as any surprise to you to say that that has the same symmetries as that. They're different objects, of course, but it's intuitively clear they have the same symmetries. Everybody happy? Right, how about that? Okay. Well, that's got a few extra symmetries, right? So, so that is rather like the previous one. It's, a, it's a just a tiling of, of, of some planar surface again. You can again shove it along by one column. That's a perfectly good symmetry. It'll preserve all the shapes and all the coloring. Uh, sorry, you have to shove that a little, you have to shove that, so you have to shove that point over to there to get a symmetry. Okay, you shove it along, there's that. Or you can shove it up. It has those symmetries again, but now it has a bit more symmetry. So how are we going to describe it this time? Well, I want you to focus on some particular point. Let's take that one. Let's take that little purple triangle there. Now, I have to get this order right here. If I, uh, if I focus at that corner of the triangle, uh, then if I turn it through 180 degrees, Right? If I stick my finger in the, in the pattern there and turn it by 180 degrees, that will be a nice symmetry of the pattern. I'll call that A, and if I do it twice, I'll get back to where I started from. Okay? Just rotate by 180 degrees. If I go to this corner, then I have to rotate by a third of a rotation. I'll call that B. Right? So that operation, stick your finger there and rotate by a third of a circle. So if you do that three times, you obviously get back to where you started from. And if you go to the final corner of the triangle, that one there, then you have to rotate by, you can rotate by a sixth of a circle. And if you rotate six times, you get back to where you start from. Okay? So I've spotted three extra symmetries that aren't to do with pushing it around, but now are to do with rotating. And I'll make some little notes myself. Look, I, I found these three cool things, A, B, and C. If I do A twice, or B three times, or six, C six times, it's the same as doing nothing. And I make one other observation. This is one for you to check at home. If you do A, then B, then C, you'll get back to where you started from. Everything will be moved back to where it started from. Now, I've made some observations about the symmetries of this, and I've made notes in my famous notebook that I'm going to take to the pub and reflect on later. Now, have I captured all of the symmetries of this? In particular, what happened to that shoving it along a bit and shoving it up a bit? Okay. When I say I've made these notes and I've got it right, well, I mean two things. I'm asserting, first of all, that every possible symmetry of that picture is obtained by doing these basic operations A, B, and C repeatedly. Maybe I'll do A once, and then B twice, then C twice, then I'll undo A, then I'll do B twice, then I'll do C three times. So you just make combinations of these basic operations, Exercise, for all those bright-eyed young students over there, <laughs> um, prove that every way of moving this pattern to itself can be obtained by repeating those operations. That's the first assertion. Second assertion, any rule that you tell me connecting some combination of A, B, and C. So you say, look, Martin, I've, I've been working on this all night. I can see that this massively long combination of A, B, and Cs will, in an unexpected way, get me back to where I started from. I claim, oh, I knew that. <laughs> um, I would say that, wouldn't I? So um, I claim that anything you can tell me about combinations of A, B, and C follows from these simple rules here. Now, I'm not going to delve into what I mean, but I honestly mean that literally. Right? Anything you can prove, any combination of moves that you can prove are related to each other, any equation relating A, B, and C can be deduced from these four simple equations here. So I have nice notes explaining exactly the symmetries of that object. Well, that's good. right? So what I'm getting to is my notes I've been making all along, remember my famous notebook, 
I've been jotting down the symmetries of every object I come across. And I've developed a sort of calculus, a sort of notation that's going to let me talk about all the symmetry groups I ever come across. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to make notes that I have some basic transformations, some basic operations I do to my thing, whatever my thing is. I'll make some notes, some equations, about some rules that are satisfied. Like here, I've noticed that these little rules are satisfied. Excuse me, are satisfied. And I'll stop making notes when I'm convinced that everything, every possible equation relating my basic operations can be deduced in a purely formal way from the ones I've written down. Okay. So, for example, let me give a simple example. If you tell me, look, I'm a clever boy, I've noticed that if you do A four times, it's the same as doing, it, doing nothing. Well, I'll say, of course it is, because if you do A twice, it's already nothing, and if you do nothing twice, it's the same as doing nothing. Okay. And so I mean that as that sort of obvious deduction from the rules. Anything you can say about the linking A, B, and C can be deduced from these simple rules. And so that I'm interested in making accurate notes in that sense. Okay? You have to have enough basic operations to generate everything, and you have to have made enough notes to have information that allowed to deduce any equation that holds between these generators. Now, uh, that means we can start just writing down systems of symmetry. Right? So number theory is a very powerful thing. Right? Once you've decided that I, I know what I mean by numbers, you start manipulating them. Right? And, and you, you, get at, you find fine structure that will tell you about real-world objects. I now have, have or we now have, uh, um, a way of just describing systems of symmetry. Right? So you might, before you ever meet something with 1,517,000,000 objects in it, you sort of have a conception of what that number is. Right? And you believe there are things that, that have exactly that many members. So now, how about if I just write down a system of symmetry and say, well, that must be the symmetries of something because it's a perfectly good system of symmetry. So for example, here's four things I might write down. I'll say, I'll, I'll look for objects that have two basic symmetries, A and B, and it doesn't matter what order you do them in. B followed by A is the same as A followed by B. Well, we saw objects like that, right? Our wallpaper and our paving were objects like that. But now I'll write down some more interesting rules and then I'll go and seek objects that have those symmetries. Okay? And what I'm hoping is, well, I love geometry. So if I write down some system of symmetry and go hunting in some intelligent way for something that has those symmetries, maybe I'll discover new geometries, right? Objects that really have interest, partly because they have these interesting systems of symmetries. So how about this one? So instead of saying it doesn't matter what order you do A and B in, suppose I have two basic objects, and I'll say if you do B then A, it's not the same as doing A then B, it's actually the same as doing A twice then B. I had to write this down so I didn't get it wrong in the wrong order. <laughs> so, so can you think of anything like that? Okay. Well, here's, here's, here's a couple of simple things you can do. Take a line, okay, now which one's which here, and say A is the one that translates this line to the right. So it sends x to x plus 1. Okay? So at any point on this line, it moves it along to x plus 1. You just move the line rigidly. Okay? And let's mark something called 0 on this line. And let's say b is the thing which contracts the line by a factor of 2 towards the, the origin. Okay? So you imagine this line is made of rubber. You can shrink it by a factor of 2, or you can move it along by 1. I leave it up to you to check that if you do B then A, it has the same effect as doing A twice and then B. So we found an object who, that has those symmetries. Right? Here's two symmetries of a rubber line that satisfies the rule we want. We've got that group that was just given to us by some, some, some abstract dry algebra, and now we've conjured up an object that has the right symmetries. Okay? Another thing you can do, by the way, for those of you who know what matrices are, if you take B to be the matrix like that, and you take A to be the matrix like that, okay? so these are ways of moving the, the, the 
to the plane to itself so that all lines go to lines, and you'll again find those matrices satisfy these rules. So that's a different object that has the same symmetries, right? You can take a rubber line, or you can take a plane and transform it in a way that always sends lines to lines. Here's two ways in which you can realize this abstract system of symmetry. Right, this is a moment to pay close attention. And I hope you're not colorblind. There's a red group, sorry. <laughs> there's, a, all right, there's a red group, but don't worry, it's called something different. G3 is red, G4 is blue. Now they're modeled on this one, right? So I've now got three basic operations and they sort of follow the same rules. Here I've got four operations they follow the same rules. Let's hunt for objects that have these symmetries. Okay? So maybe it's like this. Maybe we'll be able to do something just with a line or maybe we'll be able to write down some matrices in some dimension, maybe some bigger matrices because they're bigger groups and we'll look for ones that satisfy those rules. Hands up if you think this will be successful. <laughs> might be, right? Yeah, might be, might be. It won't. <laughs> so instead, maybe I'll just look for some finite object and look for some symmetries of this finite object, like maybe some nice bigger molecule in ethane, and see if it has three symmetries satisfying these rules. Again, you'll fail. Now, why will you fail? How do I know you will fail? Because it's, I know the following non-obvious fact, that neither of these systems of symmetry arises as the symmetries of any finite object, nor can it be realized as a group of matrices. You can't get it to act on any linear space in any way that preserves lines and any geometry. Now, in one case, there's a very good reason for that, one of those groups is the trivial group, which is to say, from the rules I've written down, so maybe it's that one, maybe it's that one, maybe let me just pick on this one arbitrarily. I, if, it, if this group was trivial, I would say you've written down a system that's just stupid. It cannot be the systems, the symmetries of any object. How do I know that? Because by a long and complicated calculation, I would figure out that these rules imply that alpha, beta, gamma, and delta are all the identity. They all do nothing. Now, maybe I'm lying to you. Maybe that's not true of that one. Maybe that's true of this one. Well, actually, only one of those groups is the trivial system of symmetry. The other one is an infinite group. That is to say, it's the symmetries of an infinite object, but is not the symmetries of any finite object and has no finite dimensional manifestations. All of its manifestations are on infinite objects and infinite dimensions. Okay, let's have a vote. <laughs> <laughs> Who thinks G3 is trivial, but G4 is infinite? Come on, don't be, you have to vote one way or the other. This is always interesting. Okay, thank you. I forgot what I said. <laughs> Did I say that was, that was trivial? I said, okay. Who thinks G4 is trivial, but G3 is infinite? It's always the same. It's always more or less 50-50. <laughs> it's actually G3 that's trivial, and G4 is an infinite group that has no finite manifestations. If you got it wrong, don't worry. <laughs> this is not obvious. Right? Now, this is a manifestation. So that's not a very, those aren't very big examples. Okay? And it's already extremely hard to tell which is which. Now what we're looking at here is a problem, a decision problem. Now it's not undecidable there. I knew the answer, for example, so it can't be that undecidable. Um, but it's a manifestation of the fact that problems about even fairly small group presentations can be intensely difficult and in fact generally impossible. And I want to explain what I mean by that impossibility, that undecidability. This is a picture of Max Dane, the beginning of the 20th century, and he was the first one in this famous paper who realized there was a problem here. And what he, sort of, what he said was, well, it's all very well writing down systems of symmetry and then saying, now I know everything about it because I've made clever notes before I went to the pub and I have a complete description of this group, but it's very hard to see what information is written down. It's very hard to extract real information from those notes, even if, in theory, you've got complete information. So, for example, 
So what he asked is, is it actually impossible? And do there actually exist algorithms, processes that you could always be confident would work, always be sure would work, that would allow you to answer basic questions such as, is the group I gave you trivial? Is there really nothing it could possibly be the symmetries of? Or whether a certain equation I give you can really be deduced from the relations that you think it can. Okay, so so those, pro those illustrate the fact that it's intensely difficult to dig the information out of, out of systems of symmetry that are written down like that. But I want to pick up on why Dane was interested in this. Okay? Dane wasn't just interested in the way I've described it as just thinking of symmetries of things and coming to it from an algebraic point of view. What Dane was trying to do was understand all models of possible three-dimensional space, so-called three-dimensional manifolds. And he was complete, particularly interested in knots. So look at this comment. One is led to such problems by necessity, and it really is by necessity, when working in geometry and topology, that knotted space curves, in order to be completely understood, demand solution of these, of these algebraic problems. So let me try, and, so I'm not going to explain why that is, but I am going to try and illustrate it. So let it wash over you. The following slide is the right impression. Oh, not that slide. There's some knots. Right? There are some knots. Now that, that is a knot table, meaning all of those knots are different. Now those, those are the simplest knots, however many there are up there. Uh, there's, uh, how many are? Three, six, eight, fifteen, is it? Um, those are the fifteen simplest knots in some sense. Okay. Um, now, how do you know they're different? That is to say, if I take two of those, how do I know I can't take a piece of string depicted in one of them and manipulate it to be the other? Okay, how do you know that's an honest list with no redundancy on it? That's exactly the sort of thing that Dane was interested in. Okay, how can you tell? that knots that appear to be different, or space that appear to be different, really are different. Now, people were very good at this in the 19th century. So here's a, a 19th century knot table. Actually, th I think this is exactly the one that was on the murderer's wall in the last episode of Lewis. <laughs> um, so here's not. so how are you going to tell those are different? Well, you think maybe that's not so hard. But then, let me show you some examples. You have to stare at that picture for quite a while to see that if you give it a good tug, you can unknot it. Right? That really is the unknot disguised. This one, as an example of Wolfgang Harkin, that is also the unknot. <laughs> if you pull that around enough, you'll find that you can deform it without passing it through itself to a circle. Now that's not obvious, right? So Dane, being a clever guy, thought, I know what I'll do. I'll translate this into an algebraic problem. So he associated a presentation of a group. He associated a group with the sort of description I've been giving you to each knot. And he then thought he'd proved, he actually made a mistake, but somebody fixed it later. He thought he'd proved that if you can say something sensible about the knot, sorry, about the group, you'll know exactly which knot you've got. And this is... So you see lots of theorems in mathematics that say, I have reduced this difficult problem to this much easier one. But one should always be aware of such statements. Right? There's, some sort of, there's some sort of principle of preservation of hardness, and this is a good example. After thinking about it for a while, Dane realized that the problem he translated it into was harder than the one he started with. <laughs> so it's hard to tell that that is the unknot, that it's really a circle, and it's extremely hard to see that it, its group is the group of the unknot. Oh dear. This is get all getting a bit bleak. So here's the undecidability. So, so these, are, these aren't utterly esoteric problems, right? You want to know what a knot is. You want to know what a group is. And it was unknown from the time of Dane until the very end of the 20th century whether it's actually possible in an algorithmic way to declassify all knots. So we had these knot tables that go up to about 14 crossings. But it was actually unknown whether it's an algorithmically solvable problem. If somebody gives you two pictures of a knot, can you decide if they're the same knot or not? Not the unknot, not knot. Yes. <laughs> can you decide if two knots are different? Okay. It turns out, and I'll try and explain in the next few minutes, uh, that that problem is solved, but it uses a huge amount of, of mathematics throughout the 20th century to answer that simple question. Can you distinguish between knots in a systematic way? What came earlier, what came in mid-century, was the realization that the algebraic version of that problem, these basic problems that Dane ran into, 
of can you tell what group you've got when you write down a system, like can you tell if that's the trivial group, that is algorithmically undecidable. Okay. Now, will that mean, now not, not that we haven't yet invented an algorithm, or the techniques we have so far are insufficient, but one can prove that there can never exist a systematic way of deciding if a group is, is the trivial group or not. Okay. You really, really, so you might at this point think, well, I'm smarter than some dumb machine. I could decide. No, no, you can't. <laughs> so anything that you could reasonably do could be done by a computer. And so there's a real theorem here that says there is no algorithm that, given an arbitrary finite group presentation, will certainly give the correct answer, yes, it's trivial, or no, it's not. Now, that doesn't mean if you're given a particular instance of a problem, you can't solve it. What it means is, before knowing which, which group I'm going to give you, you can't be sure that if you give me that, you can't think, if he gives me that, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and I'm sure it'll work. You can never be sure. Okay. So this is undecidability. Now, this isn't way out, uh, so I want to convince you, this isn't as way out an idea as you might think. So you might think, well, deciding for an arbitrary thing is trivial, that's undecidable, okay. It took until 2015, well, it took a few years ago, but it's only just appeared in the literature. So Wilton and I proved, if I, if, like those groups G3 and G4 I had, if you give me a group and ask, can this be realized as the symmetries of some finite object, we now know that's an undecidable problem. Okay? You cannot tell, given a system of symmetry, whether there's a finite object with symmetries of the prescribed type. And here's an even perhaps more concrete to many ways. So uh, Andrew Wiles up there, of course, is famous for telling us that uh, if you pick an integer that's bigger than 2 and you try to solve the equation, let's pick 11, are the integers x, y, and z non-zero integers satisfying that equation? And famously, the answer is no. But one might hope that with advances in technology, eventually, if I give you any polynomial, it's called Diophantine equations, a polynomial equation with integer coefficients, and ask you, does that have any non-trivial solutions or not? You might hope that eventually the theory would develop far enough that no matter what equation I give you, you'll be able to tell me yes or no. That's never going to happen. Right? Matiusevich proved in 1970 that that sort of Diophantine problem, that very concrete problem of given a polynomial and several variables with integer coefficients, does it have a solution in integers? That's an undecidable problem. Right? So, as Andrew proved, for certain equations you can decide. Right? But if you don't know what equation I'm going to give you, there's nothing that, that you can hope, you can be confident will work in every case. Okay, so we've talked about symmetry and we've talked about uh, uh, undecidability. Okay? We haven't talked so much about geometry and I realize that uh, I'm halfway through my slides and I have five minutes to go and I'm not going to rush, <laughs> uh, but I do want to talk a bit. So we've, we've had a lot, so um, we need action, okay? When it's no use just sitting there, sorry, we need action. It's no use just sitting there staring at these algebraic descriptions of systems of symmetry, okay? You've got, you've got to get it to act somewhere, although you're never going to understand it. So we need mechanisms, but you give me some algebraic description of a group, I need to have some mechanism to conjure up some action on something so I can use geometry to try and understand it. And hopefully in doing this I'm going to discover some nice new geometries. So let me skip ahead uh, to this construction. So he here's a group we do understand, okay? We keep seeing this. You've got two basic operations and they commute. It doesn't matter what order you do them in. Here is a, t a purely geometric description without understanding that group where I can conjure up the sort of things it acts on, okay? So as so often in mathematics, you've got some data, and it's come from some situation. And now you want to extract more power out of that. So you sit back. I seem to be saying there's a lot of sitting back in mathematics, but there is. Right? And you think, well, how else could I interpret that data? What else is naturally associated with that data that would change context? And maybe from that change of perspective, I could actually get more information. So you look at, this, at these symbols, look at your notebook, with the eyes of a topologist or a geometer instead of as an algebraist. Okay? And I'll treat that as some Meccano assembly instructions. And the Meccano instructions are, take one point, attach one wire for each of my generating objects, take a little rubber sheet and attach, glue it, 
and attach it to the wires according to, spell out the word A, B, then A inverse, then B inverse. If you do that, you'll get the, this bagel-like object over here, it's called a torus. Okay? And then the magic of algebraic topology, which I'm not going to explain, is that if you're wandering around on here, imagine yourself as a little ant wandering around on here. And imagine you're a member of the Flat Earth Society. You haven't let, yet learned to think globally. Right? You're just really a little ant, you're wandering around on here. You don't know whether you're on here or you're on here. Because right? all you see is this little dot around you. And if you're there, you've got two A arrows, and you've got two B arrows, and it all looks the same. So with a limited horizon, you don't know whether you live here or here. And so this unwrapping procedure gives me something where this group acts as symmetries. Now I rather like that, right? Because I just took some systematic way of taking the symbols of the system of symmetry and conjuring up an action. I've got this group now acting on that thing up there. And so I'll take some less familiar, I'm going to skip over this. I take some less familiar, oh, so here's another, I, I do that with this group we had earlier. I do that little construction downstairs, and I unwrap it, and upstairs in that picture I'll find this nice tessellation. Now I'm about to get new geometry. You ready for new geometry? Observe, here's something whose symmetries, look at my notes, A, B, and C, you do them twice, you get nothing, and these numbers here tell me what happens when I do A and B a couple of times. Two, three, and six. See those numbers? Two, three, and six. Let us make the least possible change. Let's turn two, three, and six into two, four, and six, and repeat that operation, okay? Take that group presentation with the minimal change that was previously given a copy of the usual tiling of the plane we're all used to. Go through that system of generating objects on which the group will be symmetries, and you get this wonderful object. Okay? Make another slight change, and you get this very similar looking object. And what's happened here is we've discovered something called hyperbolic geometry. Excuse me. Right? So Euclidean geometry is, is the one we, we're sort of naively used to with squares going off forever. Hyperbolic geometry is, is what's pictured here. And you should think of this as an infinite space. You, the, you think of this as a road system, and you've got to pay a pound to go along each edge. And so the distance between two points is how much you've got to pay to get from one point to the other. Okay? So even though these look like they're getting tiny, to go from there to there, you've got to pay that and that and that and that. that. So it's actually infinite because you've got to cross infinitely many edges to get to the end of the disk. Okay? So it's an infinite geometry, different to Euclidean geometry, that we've discovered by first starting with the system of symmetry and then asking, what is its symmetries of? Now this is a rather beautiful thing. Uh, it has all sorts of properties that are different to Euclidean space. It's very well studied. Uh, it particularly has thin triangles. And if you're wandering around in this space, you wouldn't think you're on a flat plane. You'd think you're at the point of a saddle all the time. Okay? So locally, if you're anywhere in the space and you looked around you, you'd think you're in a saddle. But this really happens in nature. <laughs> right? So what happens in hyperbolic geometry is things try to grow exponentially quickly. Right? If you count the number of triangles within that within n steps of that point, you'll find it's growing exponentially. It's multiplying roughly by two at each step. Now, for a while, you can do that in Euclidean space. Vegetables try to do it, and they end up looking curly like that. Right? A coral tries to do it, and it ends up being negatively curved, hyperbolic like that. Even, bizarrely, some crochet enthusiasts do it. <laughs> well, that's a lot to think about. Um, but I just want to finish with a couple of remarks. Oh, I should have stopped, sorry. This hyperbolic geometry happens in every dimension, okay? More than that, there's all sorts of other geometries I haven't told you about that come out of, uh, that come out of thinking about arbitrary groups. So you go, to think, you go away and you think about this, and you realize that as I was standing there in the Isle of Man, I should have zoomed out, and when I zoomed out, at the next step, I really can't be confident what I get, right? There's lots of geometry, so maybe I have flat geometry, or toral geometry, or spherical geometry, or some hyperbolic geometry. Okay, so think about this, all the young people in the audience, think about, can you decide what sort of surface you live on by just making an experiment? Can you do some ordnance survey just on the Earth and figure out whether you live on a sphere, or a donut, or a flat plane, or a higher genus surface, as they're called, something like that, or something with three holes, or four holes, or more holes. Okay. Think of experiments. Can you do that? And it might not always be easy to recognize things. So that surface there, 
is the same as that surface there. <laughs> By which I mean if you cut all the tiles up there and reassemble them so they have the same edges in common, you'll get that previous surface. So again, it's, it's hard to recognize which surface is the same, but it's possible. When you go into three-dimensional space, it's even harder and takes most of 20th century mathematics, but you can make a complete list of all possible models of reasonable three-dimensional spaces. Okay? The key people here are Poincaré, who really developed that picture of hyperbolic geometry I've explained to you, Bill Thurston, who first thought it might be possible to classify space in three dimensions, and Gregory Grisha Perlman, who's the one who actually proved it. So having gone from two to three to four dimensions, sorry, two to three dimensions, should we go to four dimensions? No. Because just as it's impossible to tell what a system of symmetry is, or it's impossible to tell if an arbitrary Diophantine equation has a solution or not, when you get to dimension four, explicitly because all groups come into play, right? So in dimension three, there's some restrictions. In dimension four, all groups, all systems of symmetry you can ever describe arise as symmetries of models of space-time, so-called four-dimensional manifold. And because you can't recognize what group you've got, you can't recognize which space-time you've got. So whilst you can classify all models of two-dimensional space and all models of three-dimensional space, it's provably impossible to make a proper, exhaustive, irredundant list of all models of four space, explicitly because of group theory. Okay. That's a good place to stop. Thank you. Mm.